I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me, uh, especially those who are listening on the radio on WBAI in New York City and on WPFW in Washington, D.C. Of course, if you're listening to us on uh, uh, as a podcast, I greatly appreciate you carving out some time to uh, search us out and listen to what I have to say there as well. Got to do a couple things. I got to do a quick note on... Some of what I talked about last week, which was the Supreme Court ruling in, uh, over the challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, last week when I did the show, the ruling had just come out. Hadn't had that much of a chance to, to read some of the particulars associated with the ruling. The initial reports were that, um, that all of the arguments were, were thrown out, essentially, and that the full face of uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act was... Uh, was left intact, unscathed by the challenges. And it wasn't a whole lot of information on, the, you know, on some of the other opinions that were expressed there. So let me just say right now, and I know this is not the widely held um, or conventional wisdom that comes from uh, Native people reporting on this thing, the ruling sucked. I'm just going to say it. The only thing that was really upheld Beyond ICWA, of course, the, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act was upheld, but it was only upheld because of one reason, and that is because this court once again promoted this false narrative about Congress having plenary powers over the affairs of Indians, and that Congress has the power to regulate the meets and bounds of Native sovereignty. Now, where does that come from? Nowhere. It's, it's dreamt up out of thin air. It is, it is literally a lie. Now, where they claim that it comes from is from the Constitution. They say the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, and I'm going to tell you what the Commerce Clause of the Constitution says, because it doesn't say much. What it says is that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, among several states, and with Indian tribes. That's what the Commerce Clause says. It says it can regulate commerce with Indian tribes, not of Indian tribes. And it doesn't say that it can regulate all, virtually every aspect of life of Native people either. It doesn't say that. It, has, it says nothing about plenary powers. Now, in case you don't know what plenary powers means, it means ultimate power, the final say, that Congress... And, and so, so this notion of plenary powers is essentially saying that Congress has the ultimate authority over the affairs of Native people. And again, where did this come from? The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made up the plenary powers doctrine. And they, you know, they kind of drew it out of uh, a couple of Supreme Court rulings you know, back in the early 1800s, and they continued to affirm this. Now, when people heard about this ICWA challenge by being challenged, you know, by this Brackeen family, so the, the court case is called Hallen versus Brackeen. 
what they heard about was that this white family wanted to adopt a native kid, uh, native children, I should say, um, and they wanted to challenge the uh, um, the law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that, that, that law passed in 1978. They claimed that it um, was an overreach by the federal government, uh, violating states' rights, because for the most part, in the United States, state courts have the authority over family matters, over child custody, over you know removing of a, uh, removal of a child from, from a household, and the placement of a child. And of course, they do that through a variety of things, including their CPS, their Child Protective Services, and of course, whatever they have in place for adoption and foster care and that kind of stuff. So that's, that was the challenge. Now, why was ICWA passed in the first place? Well, ICWA was passed for a couple of reasons, not the least of which had nothing to do with states violating Native people's rights. First and foremost, the claim was that ICWA put an end to the era of Indian residential schools. Folks, that was a federal program. I'm not saying that there weren't state-level uh, boarding schools for Native people, and, and there were. New York had, you know, New York had one. But for the most part, this Indian boarding school, this, this residential school um, policy and period was, was essentially something that, that Congress initiated with their Civilization Act back in the early 1800s that would ultimately result in places like Carlisle Indian School and literally hundreds over 300 of these schools that were authorized, funded by the federal government, and in some cases, state governments, but also operated by churches. So much for that separation of church and state thing, right? And these schools were, they were designed to eradicate native identity. I mean, the policy was kill the Indian, save the man. Look, I've talked about this stuff on the, on, on the show before, but I, I have to reiterate this because in the end, what they did with ICWA was they said that we, gotta, we, we can't do this anymore, uh, we, so we're going to put an end to residential schools, but we're also going to take away the state's unilateral authority to remove children from a household and place them um, pre predominantly in white, uh, white households, which is what they were doing. That's what the states were doing all across the country, both U.S. and Canada. They, were, they actually called it the 60s scoop, which was the idea of scooping away Native children and, uh, and uh, having them indoctrinated by, by essentially losing their family and being raised by white people. So all of a sudden, you know, Congress claims to have grown a conscience about what was, you know, about how they were eradicating our culture and said they were going to put up these guardrails uh, and order states to put a priority on placing Native children in Native households. Once they were removed from a, from a household, they had to be placed back in a Native household, even if it wasn't a family or, or even the same nation. They just wanted, through this law, to enforce this idea that Native children deserved some sort of cultural integrity and continuity. Uh, nothing to do with sovereignty. And, and this is the part that drives me nuts because everybody keeps claiming that this was... Um, uh, a win for Native sovereignty. It had nothing to do with sovereignty. We weren't authorized to place our children. Nobody in, in Congress said, okay, we're going to recognize the sovereignty of, uh, of all these nations, and we're going to recognize that it's their courts and their governments that should have the final say 
on the removal and the placement of Native children. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> and, they, and they certainly didn't say, you know what, to the extent that na some Native territories may not have the infrastructure in place for the management of child protective services, we're going to authorize funding to be released to help these Native uh, territories build up that infrastructure. No, they didn't do that either. They just said to the states, you are the ones who remove kids and place kids, and we're telling you that once you remove them from a Native household, you have to put a priority. Now, that didn't mean they couldn't place a Native child in, uh, in a non-Native home, but they had to prioritize it. And that's what the Brackeens were challenging. So there were a couple of challenges. One of them had to do with states' rights being violated by the federal government. Uh, another one was that these white people were being um, uh, discriminated against, that racism was, uh, was at play here by not allowing white, white people <laughs> to have Native children. Uh, of course, they can't give birth to Native children unless there's a Native person involved, but they wanted to preserve the right to take Native children, and then they could have them through other means, through force, and through the force of states. So they were saying that ICWA was violating um, the, the Equal Protections Act of the U.S. Constitution because it was giving a racial preference or taking away the right for a specific race to, uh, to adopt Native children. The court didn't rule on that. And, and in fact, it didn't really rule, about, uh, rule over the battle necessarily between states' rights and federal government. Instead, they went right back to this plenary powers doctrine, this notion that the founding fathers of this great nation had every intention of leaving all of the power over Native people with Congress even though there's nothing in the Constitution that really suggests that, including the, the, the Commerce Clause. We're mentioned three times in the, in the U.S. Constitution as Native people. One, we're mentioned uh, basically saying we're not a part of it. We're, we're not a part of the U.S. Constitution. And they did that through uh, this idea of an enumeration and congressional representation. When they were talking about how a state would earn congressional rep uh, um, representation, they, they talked about who could be counted as a U.S. citizen. And this is where the three-fifths of a man thing came for black people because they wanted to be able to count them for congressional representation even though they were enslaved. But they made it real clear, excluding Indians, not taxed. So those of us who were not a part of the United States at the, you know, at the signing of the U.S. Constitution, they're saying, no, they don't, they don't get congressional representation. And you know what? That's fine. I mean, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the whole notion that it's not our Constitution. And that's what they were saying, saying in that, that clause uh, for, for enumeration, that we weren't a part of it. Now, they still have to mention us in, uh, in the Constitution because there are, there are some other issues. One of the other issues was uh, this, the supremacy clause about treaties being the, you know, the, the supreme law of the land and that the executive branch had the power to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. Now, that's not a congressional power. That's an executive power. So that has nothing to do with creating this myth of, uh, of plenary powers uh, assigned to, you know, to Congress. The Commerce Clause, I already talked about that. All it said was that Congress had the power to regulate commerce with Indians, not of Indians, but just with us. So the commerce that we 
conduct on our territory, even if white folks come onto our territory to gamble or, you know, or do whatever else, that's still our commerce. That's not us conducting commerce with the United States. It is, it, it is literally U.S. citizens leaving the jurisdiction of the United States, coming onto our land to participate in some um, commercial activity. Well, that's not what the Commerce Clause gave Congress the power to regulate. They just meant that if the United States was doing business with the United States or with Native territories, that um, the Congress had, you know, um, the power to regulate that. Not to, not to rule over it, but just to regulate it. I mean, and there is a difference there. So that's all that Amy Coney Barrett and, you know, and, and some of these others, you know, who, who weighed in on this, this case said is that, no, the plenary powers doctrine is, uh, is, is well-founded law um, and that Congress does have the power to basically rule over the affairs of Indians. So anybody who suggests that, that it violated states' rights, uh, it, it's just wrong. In fact, what Amy Coney Barrett said in her ruling, uh, in her opinion, was to suggest that that was unconstitutional was a non-starter. See, they didn't even address the racism issue. And so by, by sticking strictly with a commerce or with a, a plenary powers argument, uh, the, the court ruled seven to, to two to throw out, basically throw out this challenge. Now, the two who voted against it, one was Clarence Thomas. No surprise there. And let me explain why. And the other was uh, uh, Sam Alito, I believe. Now, I say it was no surprise to hear this from Clarence Thomas because he had been real clear in previous cases. In fact, one case in particular that comes to mind was U.S. v. Lara or Laura. And, and this was a case of the United States against Billy Joel Lara or Lara, who was basically a, a lousy human being who beat his wife. Um, uh, he was native from one territory. She was native from another territory. Um, he got into uh, into a fight with uh, tribal police officers on her territory. Uh, he was charged um, with with assaulting a tribal officer, and then he was charged again with assaulting a federal officer because some of these tribal police force were were BIA police, so they were federal police. So he tried to plead, you know, claim double jeopardy, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the courts basically ruled that uh, double jeopardy didn't apply because. Uh, the, the authority of the police and, in fact, the, the whole judicial system on Native territories comes from our inherent sovereignty, not from, uh, you know, from the U.S. Constitution. So that's what they ruled. In part of that, Clarence Thomas wrote a separate opinion where he challenged the whole notion of plenary powers. He says he doesn't see where, where, where it exists. He challenged, the, the, you know, again, the Commerce Clause argument. But he, he went on to say that he doesn't see where this notion of plenary powers um, is consistent with the U.S. Constitution. So I'm not surprised that he voted against um, this plenary powers argument. Now, I'm not saying that I'm pleased that, uh, that he voted to, you know, to try to get rid of ICWA because ICWA, although it's a, a flawed law, if it were overturned and thrown out or deemed unconstitutional by some various manners, that could have had implications. So, yeah, am I among those who's, who, were, who was kind of glad that ICWA held up? 
yes, I was kind of glad, but not that glad. And so anyway, that's, that's why Clarence Thomas, um, his, his vote on this thing um, didn't surprise any of us who, who, who really been following any of this. But again, only the plenary powers doctrine was upheld. And that's the means by which they were able to throw out this challenge. Brett Kavanaugh, who was very vocal about race and racism in this case, in the oral arguments, he basically wrote a separate affirming opinion, but basically wants this challenge. He, he wants to challenge ICWA over, uh, over the Equal Protections Clause. But unfortunately for him, the, the court had to rule uh, about standing to bring that, uh, that challenge. And, and so that was thrown out basically just based on whether the, the challenge, uh, the folks making the challenge had the legal standing to make that argument. So it was thrown out for that. So it was thrown out for a technicality. We didn't get any resolution to questions of our sovereignty versus being just regarded as a inferior race of Americans. So I just have to say that, that I'm not happy with the ruling because of that. And it, all it did was affirm something that I am vehemently opposed to, which is this notion that somehow Congress has been granted the power to rule on every aspect of Native life. You know, and the other words that get thrown around here all the time are, are, are the trust responsibility, the trust responsibility of the United States. Well, and I've said this before, and, and I've got to say it again. When we hear this expression, trust responsibility, it, you have to realize they don't mean trust as a virtue, as something, as in something that is trustworthy or, or trusting somebody or having trust in somebody. No, that's not what they mean. When they use the word trust, they mean trusteeship. This is all about trying to cast Native people as somehow beneath everybody else and merely regarding us as wards of the state. So when they talk about trust, they mean that they are our trustees, that we are merely their wards, that they are the custodians. I mean, this gets right to the killers of the flower moon and the murder of the Osage. Because again, even when we, were, when we managed to obtain significant wealth, we are still regarded as incompetent. And, you know, look, there are still, there are congressmen today that re still refer to us as wards of the state. Well, <laughs> I don't know where anybody could talk about things like equal protection when, when they're really looking down on a people as they do us in this so-called trust responsibility uh, that the United States claims to have. So the ruling sucked. It was in place still. And, and I'm not saying that's a terrible thing uh, because it, it did stem some of the, the flow of Native kids uh, from Native families to, uh, you know, to being raised by white people, either in residential schools or in foster care and adoption. So it did stem some of that. It didn't do it the right way, but it did stem some of that. Um, I still think there needs to be a better system in place where our authority over our children is recognized. That's not what we have here, folks. And ICWA doesn't do it. This Supreme Court ruling didn't do it. All it did was affirm this myth that Congress was granted power over Native people 
over Native people in the U.S. Constitution, which is simply not true. All right, so that's enough. That uh, That's all I'm going to say about ICWA for now. For now. I want to move on. I need to talk about gaming again. And I know I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, sent out the early warning flags here on this one that the Senecas were really getting to a place in their negotiations with New York State over a gaming compact. And a gaming compact is, um, is an agreement required by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA, or IGRA. Um, it requires by its law, by its, its foundation of law, that um, Native territories interested in gaming must enter into a gaming compact with the states, and this is even diff- difficult, the states that, that they reside in. <clears throat> and I can argue whether the Seneca Nation territories are within New York State. Now, maybe from a border standpoint, they are in the interior of, of the state's geography. But to say that they are in the state as if a part of the state, that's another problem altogether. So let me, do, let me take a little bit of a walk back in history. February 25th of 1987, the Supreme Court ruled in a challenge by California to a couple of small territories, one of which was the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians down near Palm Springs, California, where California was trying to challenge their gaming operations and was trying to get the federal court to rule that they had the authority over native gaming in the state. Well, guess what? The federal government didn't rule that way. In fact, the federal government ruled in the opposite direction. So the Supreme Court ruled that native people did have the right to do gaming and that there was nothing in any federal statute that suggested that the states had that authority. Of course, this is, again, you know, can, can be argued where there's no congressional authority being asserted over gaming either. So therein lies the problem. So 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that Native people have the right to do gaming. Now, let me say it again. They ruled that we had the right. They didn't give us that right. So what the courts were doing was they were recognizing that we maintained that authority to do gaming. It was legal for us to do gaming. They didn't make it legal. They just recognized that when we do high-stakes bingo, casinos, whatever kind of, you you know, card games, table games, whatever, that there was nothing in the federal statutes that suggested that our, that conduct was illegal on our territories. And there was certainly nothing in the federal statutes that gave states any authority over, over those operations. February 25th, 1987. So, <laughs> October of 1988, Congress, using this BS plenary powers doctrine again, creates federal law that established the jurisdictional framework that governs Indian gaming. Now, let me say this clearly. We didn't need this law. It was already legal for us to do gaming. So when Congress, again, asserting this mythological plenary powers doctrine, passes a law, they, take, they create laws to make native gaming illegal. 
and they, they create the framework that says, this is what legal Indian gaming is, and this is what illegal Indian gaming is. Now, in 1988, we had already been engaged in many confrontations with states. And I say that as Haudenosaunee here in New York State, but in states throughout the United States, Native people had been pushing back against state authority. I mean, this, and this wasn't about saying, well, Congress has that authority, but the states don't. No, we weren't saying that. We were pushing back against sales tax, state income tax, um, any regulatory authority the states were trying to assert on our territories. We were pushing back against all of it. So lo and behold, Congress, in its ultimate power and infinite wisdom, passes the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And what's the first thing that they, they call for in this, in this law? That native gaming interests, native, native people have to compact with states. They have to create a gaming compact, a, a regulatory framework that puts the states in our business. That's what Congress did. So they said, essentially, you can't do gaming unless you have a compact uh, with the state that you're in. And they mandated that the states had to, by this law, negotiate in good faith this, uh, the particulars of what, uh, what the, this, this gaming regulation would look like. No place in IGRA, let me repeat it, no place in IGRA is there any language that forces a native gaming operation to pay money to the state as a, you know, as a tax or, or a fee or anything else. What IGRA did say is that states can submit reimbursement billing to native territories for any expenses that they incur in the role that they play in regulating native gaming. So essentially, we're going to give the states regulatory control, but we're going to make native people pay for it. It's essentially what IGRA was saying. But what those states had to do is they had to create, you know, itemized billing on what they were billing uh, Native people for. But that was only for reimbursements of their costs. This was not a revenue sharing agreement. This was not revenue stream for, for the states. It was reimbursement for, allegedly, for the cost of, uh, uh, of their regulatory role in, in Native gaming. There's nothing in IGRA that calls for Native people to pay the state a percentage of the revenue. But what happens in um, this expansion of native gaming after IGRA is passed is this notion of, well, we can't be taxed by the states, but if we can get some concession from the state that will help our business, we could share some of our revenue, right? And that's what they asked of the Interior Department. And, and the Interior Department said yes. <clears throat> revenue sharing is allowable. It's not required but it's allowable, but it cannot be in the form of a tax and it can't be forced. It has to be based on the state offering a concession that is substantial. So, and that meaning, meaning substantial enough to even jet to, to be, you know, worth revenue sharing. So it has to be something that benefits the native gaming operation in a substantive way. And it had to be quantifiable. You had to be able to say, okay, yeah, that, what you gave the, this native gaming operation is worth X amount of dollars, um, in, in real dollars. <clears throat> we, can, we can quantify its value 
so we can gauge what that revenue sharing should look like based on that quantifiable value. Unfortunately, the Interior Department, which is the, um, the legal authority to enforce IGRA, and I mean enforce the state's violation of IGRA, not just our or the native violation of IGRA, but, but again, to keep the state's line, they do nothing in this. <clears throat> they lifted no finger whatsoever. They, they, they offered no enforcement power to stop a state from essentially extorting money out of, out of native gaming. So again, my criticism of this so-called plenary powers doctrine, we didn't, need a, we didn't need the federal government to pass a law to legalize native gaming. It was already legal. Your courts even said so. So that's what they passed. So now let me explain how bad this revenue sharing can be. And one of the worst examples that I could offer up is the one the Senecas are just completing. Um, a 21-year gaming compact term in which the majority of that time, and, I, and I, I'm going to say 14 of those 21 years, the Seneca Nation was giving to New York State 25%, and this term is going to need some expl explanation, 25% of the net slot drop from their electronic, class three electronic gaming machines, slot machines. 25% of the net slot drop. I'll explain what that means in a minute. What the state was giving was supposed to be exclusivity for gaming. But what the state was really giving was nothing. They were essentially saying, we won't put any Class 3 gaming in all of Western New York in exchange for your revenue sharing. But New York State couldn't put Class 3 gaming in Western New York. In fact, New York couldn't put Class 3 gaming anywhere. It was illegal for New York State to enter into Class 3 gaming. Their constitution forbid it. It was, so they didn't give anything up. And in fact, from 2002, when they entered this compact and, and Seneca Nation Gaming began, until about 2014, New York State still had on, in their constitution a prohibition against Class 3 gaming. But when the Senecas were building that, that market, essentially for, for over a decade, the state was doing everything they could to compete against the Seneca Nation, even within Western New York what was considered the exclusivity zone. They were expanding class two gaming. They were, they were putting slot machines that essentially just because of the electronics and the technology associated with the machines, they could look and play like a, a class three slot machine, but they weren't. So that's what the state did. They invested billions of dollars in, in filling their, their dying horse tracks with, with these uh, electronic class two gaming uh, slot machines. And of course, they were also expanding um, their lottery, their state lottery, you know, getting involved in multi-state lotteries. They were uh, expanding their, their Kino game that is called Quick Draw. They were expanding scratch-offs. They, uh, you know, and of course, they still had horse racing, which they had off-track betting and all kinds of other wagering that was happening within the Seneca's exclusivity zone. And ultimately, the state would also pass sports betting which can be done anywhere 
on your phone. You don't even have to walk into a facility to do it. So the state was competing in every way it legally could against the Seneca Nation's Class 3 gaming operation. Now, in 2014, they finally changed their constitution that allowed the state to build some Class 3 uh, casinos or to license some Class 3 casinos, and they licensed a few of them. None of them were, were licensed within the, the so-called ex exclusivity zone, but you know what? That market was already kind of getting saturated even back in you know, 2014. So it probably wasn't the best place to build one. In fact, the closest one they built to Seneca territory, the Seneca marketing or gaming market, was on, just on the other side of Rochester from Seneca territory, right alongside the thruway, a casino called Delago. And Delago is a hot mess. They've never been able, able to play, pay down their, their debt service for building the, the casino. They've been only making interest payments. You know, the, the original... Uh, Owner-operator sold it off to somebody else. Um, they they whined like hell to, to the state to try to drop down the, the tax that the, the state was charging these casinos and, and, and some of the racetrack casinos. So, so a casino even close to the Seneca market was not viable. So the Senecas already had a grip on the market. And... The state couldn't put class three slot machines or, or gaming operations in Western New York. And in fact, even after 2014, when they changed their constitution, they had to have the state legislature approve the site selection for where the next casinos would go. And the legislature wasn't going to approve trying to put more gaming in Buffalo or Niagara Falls. And here's the thing. What the Senecas were paying was a significant amount. Now, early on, the, both the racinos, the, the racetrack casinos, and the, the, the um, uh, first three casinos that the state licensed, class three casinos, they were paying somewhere between 30 and 40% tax on the net revenue of the casinos. And, and in fact, I think it was like 30 to 40% of, uh, of the slot machines, but only about 10% of the table games, because table games aren't nearly as, uh, as lucrative. So that's what they were... That's what they were charged. And then they bitched like hell about having to pay that much. The Senecas were paying, oh, they're paying less, right? 25% of the net slot drop. Well, let's talk about what net slot drop means. Because it's a made-up accounting expression. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Net slot drop is the money that goes into a slot machine minus the payout. It is not net revenue. It is gross revenue. And to say that it's anything but gross revenue, that would be like telling any kind of storekeep, we're going to tax you on the money that comes into your register. And, and to say, well, but no, you've got to, some money comes out of that. They, they give change out. Well, to say net slot drop, that's like saying, we're going to count all the money that comes into your register minus the change you come out, and, uh, and we're going to call it a net revenue. Well, it's not a net revenue. That's a gross revenue. So 25% of the revenue or of the, the money that came into a slot machine that wasn't paid out in, 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 in prize money, 25% came right off the top and went to the state. Now the 75% that the Seneca's got to keep, they have to operate a casino on that. 
they have to replace carpets and they have to uh, you know, pay salaries and wages and bar you know um, uh, bartenders and cocktail waitresses and they've got to you know fund the the hotels and the hotel staff and they've got to you know pay for the electricity and, and pay for you know the the lease agreements and the uh, and the licensing agreements with uh, on all these electronic games in fact some of these electronic games the the vendor gets a, a gets a cut of the those machines as well but they don't get the cut out of the out of the out of the gross because the state gets it cut it's cut even before the vendor does so when you do the math you find out that 25% of the net slot drop actually equaled more than 50% of the net revenue. And, and let me just give you some, you know, some full numbers. In the 20, in what will be 21 years of this current compact agreement with this 25% of the net slot drop, which is, again, is only for the last 14 years of this 21 years. The first seven, that percentage was between 18 and 22%. But only the last 14, when the when the casinos were the most profitable, allegedly, 25% of that slot drop was getting um, paid off to the state. So in this 21-year period, New York State will have collected over $2.2 billion from Seneca Gaming, while the Seneca Nation will have only collected $2.4 billion. But I know what somebody's going to say. Yeah, but wait a second. The Seneca still got $200 million more dollars than the state did. So they actually did get more than 50%. No. <laughs> Let me explain. The only reason the Seneca's got $200 million more than the state was because in 2013, the Seneca's negotiated a settlement of the state's breach of their gaming compact by keeping $200 million of an escrow account that was, had built up to over $600 million. So the state agreed to allow the Senecas to keep $200 million of what would otherwise have been due to them in this revenue sharing agreement. So the revenue sharing agreement, as it was written and interpreted by the state, would have yielded the state $2.4 billion and the Senecas $2.2. But because the Senecas withheld payment and then forced a settlement where they kept $200 million, that's the only reason they made more money off their casino in this compact period than the state. It's the only reason. So, two, so 25% of the net slot drop is actually equal to 52% of the net gaming revenue. 52%. The state was getting 52% from the Seneca's gaming while they were getting between 30 and 40% out of the state licensed casino. They were actually making more money off of the Senecas than, uh, than they were making off of their, their own licensed casinos. I mean, it's, it is absurd that the Senecas were giving most of their... Um, even if you wanted to call it a 50-50 split, which it wasn't, they were giving half of their revenue away to the state. And the state invested nothing. They didn't, make, they didn't invest in the casinos. They didn't pay for anything. They had no responsibility to the operation. They risked nothing and yet pulled in over $2 billion, most of which left Western New York completely, most of which. All right, so 
where are the current compact negotiations? Well, clearly the Senecas would never, ever put themselves in a situation where they were paying that much revenue to the state, especially when you consider how the final um, amount of money that the Senecas had withheld because, frankly, they didn't believe they even needed to pay for the last seven years because of the language of the compact. We went to arbitration, and the two white guys ruled, no, you got to keep paying. It doesn't say it in the compact, but we're saying it. We're saying, as we interpret the, the compact, that, yeah, you should, you should continue to pay for the last seven years you know, of, the, of the compact. It doesn't say it there, but we're saying it. So the, the Seneca said withheld $560 million, less than $600 million, but $560 million over this dispute. And, you know, they lost an arbitration. The courts wouldn't hear anything because they said that you're bound by arbitration you know, rulings. Uh, the Interior Department wouldn't step up and say a damn thing. So the Senecas were, were probably facing the prospect of, of having to pay that money. But Kathy Hochul wasn't going to wait for them to get to that place. Instead, she froze all of the operating accounts of the Seneca Nation not the ones where the money was, where that $560 million was sitting. She didn't like grab that money. She froze their operating accounts, crippling the Senate Nation. She did it on a Friday. So, in a way, that was a good thing because there's not a whole lot of payables that are going out. But there were, there were paychecks that were outstanding. The Seneca had to send notes to their employees to not cash their paychecks until they resolved this. So, the, so Kathy Hochul froze the account. She used a law that is basically in place for somebody who has been fined by the state, who has a, 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 some sort of fine assessed against them, and this is a tool that a state can use to force the payment of a fine. This, is, this was revenue sharing. This wasn't a fine. She was treating the Seneca Nation as some sort of criminal who had been fined some absorbent amount of money and she was going to freeze their accounts until they paid. So she extorted $560 million out of the Seneca Nation. Now, it doesn't even end there because when she grabbed that $560 million through this extortion scheme, she then turned around and gave over $400 million of it to Western New York's favorite billionaire, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, Terry and Kim Bagula, gave them the money to build a new stadium because the Pagulas were threatening to, you know, to, to move the Buffalo Bills to a, to a better city than Buffalo. So she took the money from the Senecas and then gave $400 million of it to the owners of the Buffalo Bills for a new stadium. And you know what's even crazier? They just did the groundbreaking ceremony a couple of weeks ago. Do you know how many Senecas were at that groundbreaking ceremony? None. Not one representative of the Seneca Nation even participated in the groundbreaking, even though they, were, they had accounted for $400 million of the state's $800 million commitment to, uh, to the Pagulas. I mean, it's, it's, it's really that level of, of absurdity. So having been screwed by the state for 20, over 20 years with this old compact agreement, which topped out at 25% of the net slot drop for revenue sharing, in exchange for 
a non-existent exclusivity. You would think the Seneca leadership would never have gotten in this situation again. But what they, what they did was they hired a firm that was going to negotiate this compact with the state. And what this firm needed to know was, well, but how much could you pay? I mean, how much is a reasonable amount of money for the Seneca Nation to share with the state? I got to tell you, that's not even the question. The question is, what is the state offering and what value does this offering from the state have? That's the question that needed to be asked. The Interior Department themselves said that revenue sharing can only be legal if the states offer a concession that is both substantial and quantifiable. You don't start with how much could the Seneca Nation pay. You start with how much is the state willing to give. Well, the Seneca Nation came up with a figure of around 12%. They felt they could pay 12% of the net slot drop and still be considerably viable. In exchange for the same BS exclusivity the state was offering, which means even less now because the state, again, has, has grabbed larger, larger percentages of the gaming market in Western New York. And essentially, the Senecas could double their gaming revenue by just stop paying the state. If they stop paying the state, they doubled their gaming revenue because they were giving half of it away to the state. And if they kept 100% of their gaming revenue, they wouldn't need any, I, ca I call it Dumbo's feather. Um, this, th they wouldn't need an exclusivity because their regulatory advantages would give them exclusivity. Nobody's going to build a casino to compete with the Senecas, especially the Senecas have a 30 to 40% you know, operating margin advantage over a state licensed casino. For a casino to get a state license, it, it costs, or, or for a non-native operator, for a gaming operator to get a state license, it costs half a billion dollars. Then you got to spend another half billion dollars building a class three facility. So you're going to spend a billion dollars and then compete against the Seneca Nation that's been in the business for 20 years already in this market and has a, will, will have had at least a 30% operating margin advantage. Nobody would even finance such a thing. The Senecas didn't need an exclusivity, especially if they weren't paying. So you figure they're never going to do that again. Well, the deal, when they figured they could afford 12%, the state says, no, we got to do better than that. So the state throws, well, what about a Rochester casino? I know you guys were kind of interested in building a casino in Rochester. Forgetting the fact that the Lago, just on the other side of Rochester, is a failing enterprise already, the state says, what if we were to help you secure a Rochester casino? Now, I don't know what the state could do to help. It's not like they were going to take land through eminent domain. Trust me, the Senecas would have to buy whatever land they were going to you know, do an operation on. But So the state offers this. And so then the Senecas come back, well, if we had a gaming operation in Rochester that could make X amount of dollars, um, sure, after we recoup some of our you know, our investment, we could have, we could go up to close to 20%. And that's what the Senecas offered. They offered 19.5% for 29 of the 30 years that this compact was supposed to represent. That is an insane offering. Even if you throw, you know, a, a Rochester casino into the mix, the one that the Senecas would have to pay for, of course. It's not like the state was going to offer them 
a casino. <laughs> but 19.5% is what the Senecas uh, were agreeing with state negotiators with. Now, they didn't tell anybody this. Instead, both the Seneca leadership and the, and the state negotiators tried to sneak this thing through because in order for this thing to get done by the end of the year, because this gaming compact essentially expires at the end of this year, the current one, in order to get this thing through, they had to like get it through the state legislature. Now, they don't have a finished deal, so they didn't offer any of the details to the state legislature. They just passed or, or submitted a bill that would authorize the governor to enter into a compact agreement with the Senecas based on, you know, so, some basic, uh, you know, principles already established. Among those things was the Rochester Casino. They didn't tell anybody. So the Senate, the state Senate went ahead and passed this bill authorizing Governor Hochul to, uh, to negotiate a compact with the Senecas based on, you know, some already agreed to principles. But the, the assembly said, wait a second. You're going to put a Rochester casino? They, it leaked out that, there were, that a Rochester casino was part of the deal. We weren't a part of this conversation. And, and how could a Rochester casino be viable if Delago can't even make it? So the market's already saturated, and you want to throw another gaming operation in the city of Rochester? You know, hours away, essentially, an hour and a half away from Seneca territory. So no Senecas are going to work there. So the Senecas weren't aware of this, and neither was the state legislature. So this deal died in the state legislature. And, of course, it would have died anyway because this gaming compact was going to have to be voted on by the, by the Senecas. They were going to have to go to a referendum. And they were offering almost as much money to the state this time as they did for the past 21 years. So what is 19.5% of the net slot drop equal to? Well, it's at least 40% of the revenue. No, it's not 52% like the 25% was, but 19.5% was going to at least be 40% of the net revenue. And I say at least because the cost of operating a casino is more today than it was even a year ago. Labor has gone up dramatically. Labor and salaries has gone up dramatically post-COVID. Building materials. Look, they have to completely renovate this, these casinos every few years just to keep them classy. They got to tear up the carpets. They got to redesign the interior. They've got to replace machines on a continuous basis. They've got employees to pay for. They've got executives to pay for, administrators and, you know, and, and senior uh, management to pay for. And this is the sole source of, of public finance for the Seneca Nation. So even though they reduced it from 25% of the net slot drop to 19.5% of the net slot drop, the fact is the 80.5% that the Senecas would get to keep in this new scenario, more of it might get chewed up in, in the operation of the casino. So this 19.5% of the net slot drop, for all intents and purposes, intents and purposes, <laughs> it could still come close to 50% of the net revenue because everything's more expensive and it's going to continue to be more expensive, especially as these buildings, three of them that the Senecas operate, continue to age. It's going to cost more and more money each year, and this is a 30-year deal. 
I am incredibly um, disappointed in the Seneca leadership for, for doing this. And it's not going to fly. In fact, you know, political careers could end as a result of this terrible, um, these terrible terms that they negotiated. Now, this isn't a done deal. In fact, the leg legislature kicked it away, and the Seneca people, they're meeting, they've been meeting, you know, in places, you know, homes and, you know, meeting areas all over the Seneca Nation to condemn this thing. And my hope is that they, when, when asked, well, what is a reasonable amount of revenue sharing that you could offer the state? I hope that number is zero because that's all it should be. And if it was zero, the Senecas could double their gaming revenue without building anything, not the least of which would be a risky gaming venue in Rochester, New York. So there's where we stand. I think the Seneca people are demanding um, a better deal. There's no way that this would have, I mean, even if it had gotten through the state legislature, which it didn't, it would have never gotten through the Seneca people. And, you know, like I said, it's, it, it, it's a terrible thing that when you get cheated for so long in your life that you think that that is the norm. And that that is, you know, uh, I, I think there was language, something about it, this in the Declaration of Independence. It's, it's amazing what, you know, what, a, what man can bear when they endure the, the sufferable. Well, the Seneca Nation, yeah, it made $2.4 billion in, tw in over 20 years. But it should have been twice that. And it wasn't because they were getting screwed by, by New York State. And again... The Seneca Nation should never be in a situation where this governor or any governor can say, you know what, we think you owe us money and we're going to freeze your accounts and make you pay. They should never be in that situation again. They should never offer revenue sharing again to New York State. It hurts them and it actually hurts the region. Like I said, out of that $2.2 billion that the Seneca Nation paid to New York State, only about 25% of that came back, this, back to Western New York. Over a billion dollars left Western New York. That's money that left the economy. If the Senecas had kept that money, it would have got spent right back into the Western New York economy because this is where we live, right? So this is an absolute terrible deal that is the product of a law that we never needed, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, and an interior department that literally refuses to hold states accountable. Even now, as they are supposedly pondering rule changes to take something away from the state, the Senecas went and negotiated a 30-year deal that would have never changed in that 30, in that 30 years. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's absurd. It's amazing. I'm going to keep you folks posted on, on where this goes. Um, and, and how I voice my thoughts and opinions on this thing, but more importantly, how the Senecas feel about it. I will continue to do that. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, again, I want to thank the listeners on WBAI and WPFW. Uh, I hope you support these stations. They uh, provide me a space to talk about the oppression that Native people experience, and I greatly appreciate having the space to do that. So support WPFW and WBAI. I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.